Amen. Yeah, that is something for us to celebrate. And a happy Labor Day weekend to you all. Uh, So you are one of the not 35 million people traveling this weekend, or maybe some of you are. Actually, I met someone who is uh, from out of town traveling this weekend, but you guys get bonus points. I don't know if that actually means anything, but bonus points uh, for being in church. And uh, so this morning, get your Bibles out, turn to, there's no such thing as bonus points, by the way. Okay, if you're like, oh, I get a bonus point. No, you don't. Um, but turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. And, and this week, I can't believe we're already at the end of this sermon series. Uh, But for the last four weeks, uh, this will be week five of us looking at faithful church and what a faithful church is. But uh, this final week is that a faithful church loves ministry. Ministry. Faithful church loves ministry. And, and, And if we're really honest with ourselves, I think a lot of us, when we hear the word ministry, when we think of ministry... Uh, we tend to think of the work or the vocation of a pastor or a clergy member. So some of you might be like, uh, Mike, that's your job. Uh, That's what you do. And in one sense, that's not wrong, but it's also incomplete. Uh, Because what we're going to see is that ministry is far beyond just a handful of professionals. If you want to think about ministry, think of it this way. Ministry is carrying out Jesus' mission to the world. It's any task, it's any work that helps to execute the Great Commission. And it's done by all of us. And so it's not reserved solely for a group of professionals or for some subset within the church. Or, well, that's what really spiritual people do. They're involved in ministry, but I'm just kind of like this Christian over here. No, no, loved ones, it's for all of us. In fact, I joked a few weeks ago, well, I, I shared a joke that A pastor back in North Carolina likes to say that when he became a pastor, he retired from ministry. And what he has in mind is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about prophets and and, and pastors and teachers and evangelists, and, and that God gives them to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The idea being that we're all involved, that we're all at work in this. And so what we're going to see in God's word this morning, what we're going to just come back to over and over again, is that the chief aim of ministry, listen carefully, the chief aim of ministry is the proclamation and exaltation of Jesus. So anything and everything that you and I do, what we're about is the proclamation and exaltation of our Lord and Savior. So with that, let's get right to the text. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to start in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in our lobby. If you don't own a Bible, uh, uh, keep it. That's our gift to you. Uh, But we like to have people looking at the scriptures just so you don't think I'm making things up. All right. So 1 Corinthians 9, 15 and following. uh, Here's what God's word has to say to us. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And then Paul continues. He says, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word for us uh, this morning. Loved ones, we would do well to go before him and ask him uh, to give us wisdom and insight. So why don't you join me as we pray? And then we'll walk through this text together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come before you and we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would come and move and work within us. God, we pray that we would be a church that loves ministry because we love you. Uh, And God, we pray that you would uh, give us fruitful and faithful ministry to you. But God, not only for us, as always, we want to pray uh, for another church in the area. And so this morning, I pray for Pastor Abiel Diaz and for Ciudad de Gracia. And I thank you for this brother in you. And thank you for the good work that they're doing uh, in the war zone and in the Spanish-speaking church. And I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in them. And God, that you would choose to do a great work in and through that church in the same way that we would ask that you would uh, be at work within this church. And so God, open our eyes. Uh, Give us ears to hear, uh, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that long to understand all that you have for us this morning and to be glorified in all these things. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so as already mentioned, the title of the message this morning is that a faithful church loves ministry. A faithful church loves ministry. And so we're in 1 Corinthians 9. Let me just give you a little bit of context uh, around 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's most likely uh, that this is where we'll move at the beginning of 2019. It's through the book of 1 Corinthians. But we've got Daniel in front of us that we'll start next week uh, before we get to that. But, But this is a church that had major issues. This is a broken, dysfunctional, messed up church. And that's just putting it kindly. And so I don't know, I don't know about you, but when I read different books of the Bible, sometimes you have like a different sense or a different feel that will accompany uh, what's going on in the text. Like when I read Philippians, I, I find myself so challenged and so encouraged. It's like, oh, I, I want to live like that. Or when you read Ephesians, there's just these rich theological truths and you just glory in the fullness of who our God is. And, and when I read 1 Corinthians, I just find myself comforted. Because if God can use a group of misfits like that, there's there's still hope for me. It's like, okay, I've got a shot. God can still do something in and through me if he can use this group of morons. And that's really what this church is. They're just clueless. And so, so in chapters 8 through 10, there's this whole issue around food offered to idols. And that's really the manifestation of a heart issue that, that has some believers looking at other believers wrongly and improperly. And so what Paul is really getting at is he's trying to uh, unpack and to, to give freedom in this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus lets you be. And this is who you actually are in Christ. And so that's what he's getting at. But what we see in the second half of chapter nine is he gives us a really healthy perspective of how we should view ministry. And so much like last week, we'll, we'll draw some, uh, some truths from the text. And then at the end of our time, uh, we'll move to a couple other places in the scripture to give us a little bit more practical, tangible ways of how uh, we can effectively minister to one another. But let's start with what we have here in first Corinthians nine, uh, three things that I want us to see in the text. Here's the first around a faithful church loves ministry is that ministry aims to make the gospel accessible. Ministry aims to make the gospel accessible. And so notice what Paul is saying in verse 15. And what you have to understand is he's building on an argument. So starting at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul is making this huge argument around his rights and his freedoms and entitlements in all the right senses of that word of what, what, what he deserves as an apostle. And so you get to verse 15 on the tail end of his argument. He says... But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Wait, what the, why would you make such a big deal about these rights? Well, he tells us why in the next sentence. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And he, what he goes on to say when you get down to verse 18, that I may present the gospel free of charges. Paul's primary concern is that the gospel would be accessible to all people. So ministry aims to make the gospel accessible. Three things with respect to this idea of making the gospel accessible. First of all, in verse 15, that you and I would be willing to forego our rights to make the gospel accessible. That's what we just talked about. Paul's made this huge argument around his rights. And he's like, I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. 
And why, Paul? Why would you do that? Because Paul does not want there to be a hindrance, an obstacle, or a barrier to the gospel. He's saying, I want this thing to be as accessible as possible. I don't want anything to get in the way that would undermine this. And so I'm going to forego certain rights or certain entitlements or certain things that I could lay claim to, to prevent any of that from coming in the way. In fact, he says that he would rather die than be deprived of this boast. I mean, that's strong language, is it not? So loved ones, I, I want to ask you before we go any further, what rights, just think about in your life here for a moment, what rights would you be willing to forego to make the gospel more accessible to those around you? What privileges, what freedoms, what prerogatives are yours, and yet I would choose to release them. I would choose to let go of them if that meant that the gospel would be more accessible to those around me. That I'm willing to set aside blank if that means getting at the gospel is easier for this person. See, what Paul's saying is I'm going to avoid anything that would undermine gospel effectiveness. Right? We forego our rights to make the gospel accessible. Am I more concerned about what's rightfully mine or am I more concerned about the gospel being accessible to those around me? That's one thing we see about aiming to make the gospel accessible. Notice, secondly, look at verse 16 and 17, that we embrace God's commission to make the gospel accessible. We embrace God's commission to make the gospel accessible. And so notice all of these different terms that Paul is using tied to this, this concept of commission. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. And so he's talking about necessity. He's talking about this stewardship, uh, this woe to me if I don't preach. And it's most likely, it's most likely that what Paul has in mind here is the commission that God gave to him back in Acts chapter 9. Do you remember that? So in Acts 9, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, and hey, I'm going to go persecute Christians. Jesus shows up. Uh, Paul is saved, and he's like, hey, this is who you're going to be, and this is what you're going to do. And so no doubt that there's, there's some sense of this in line with what Paul is, is, is getting at. And so when he goes so far as to say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, that too could be tied to Paul's commission. But doesn't there seem to be a sense in which a lot of what Paul is getting at really lines up with what God has commanded of all of his followers? I, I, I think part of what we see, yes, this is tied to Paul's commission, but I think part of this is speaking to your responsibility and my responsibility to make Jesus known to the people around us. Like, did you understand that you have a commission from God to make him known? Do you know that the church, that wasn't a rhetorical question. I want you to answer that. Okay. Do you know that you have a commission to make him know? Yes. Okay, good. Right. And if you didn't, we would run to Matthew 28 or to Acts 1 or Colossians 1 or all these different places that very clearly articulate the reality that you and I have this same commission that Paul has. That we're to make him known. And part of what Paul's getting at here is not just, hey, hey, I understand that this is part of my responsibility. It's deeper than that. This isn't something that I do on the side. This isn't a hobby. This is central to my existence. And the same is true for you and I. We embrace God's commission to make the gospel accessible. Am I working towards this being easy for people to come at? Or am I more concerned with doing some other thing that I'm interested in? We embrace God's commission to make the gospel accessible. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 18. Is that we find reward in making the gospel accessible. So look at what he says in verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? Keep in mind, this is on the heels of not only the last couple of verses, but the entirety of chapter 9 up until this point. And some of the things that should have been afforded to him. And yet he's saying, I don't want those, but this is what I want. What then is my reward that in my preaching, I want to underline these next few words, I may present the gospel free of charge. So the reward, right, in aiming to make the gospel accessible is that it can be freely offered to all that we come into contact with. 
And so in making the gospel accessible, there's no hindrances, there's no roadblocks, there's no obstacles, there's, there's nothing that stands in the way of people being able to come to know Jesus. And here's what I want you to consider for a moment. Here's what I want us to reflect on and think on. Because I wonder, church, I wonder if we've created unnecessary barriers or unnecessary obstacles to the gospel itself. I wonder if we've actually made this thing harder than it needs to be. And here's what I mean by that. Are there things, and I think there are, so I'll just put my cards on the table right away, but are there things that we impose in our cultural version of Christianity that actually makes the gospel more elusive than it needs to be? And some of you, some of you grew up in traditions and faiths and things of this nature. Some of you have wrestled uh, for years of your life, maybe even decades of your life around this, this very concept. Some of you are still wrestling with this very thing. And here's what I mean by this. Where we have this cultural perception of the gospel. And maybe you and I aren't pushing this, but it's very much out there. That in order to really get that, that at some level I have to earn it, some level I have to prove it, or at some level I have to demonstrate that I'm worthy of it. Which honestly is sickening to even say that, much less think about it. That we put these artificial barriers in the way of the gospel going forward. And I think part of it is maybe we try to sanitize the gospel. Here's a couple ways that I think we do the opposite of making the gospel free of charge. I'm sure you've never heard anything like this, but when we tell people about the gospel and what we run to is them being good, them getting their act together, or them cleaning their lives up. Ever heard that? Show your hands. Raise your hand if you ever heard something like that. For the love, can you tell me where in this book it says that? Because like, I can't find it. I can find all kinds of things that are the exact opposite of that. Here's one. God demonstrates his love for us in this and that while we were still what? Sinners. Sinners. You don't have anything together. You were a mess. Christ died for us. You and I were off the rails. God already knows we're off the rails. And he came and and proactively intervened on our behalf. And and so not only do, do we get into issues there where it's like we want to try to modify people before they come to Christ. Then people will put faith in Christ and we do this really weird thing where we're fixated on, on, on morality or external behavior. So, okay, you're a Christian now, good. Um, you, there's no more cussing, and we don't smoke, and we don't watch these movies, uh, and we'll go so far as like, you, you, there's no more dancing, and let's be honest, some of us should just never dance, okay, period. Has nothing to do with our faith. Uh, I'm in that group. There's just no dancing at all. Okay, but like all these different things that really what we do is we almost create this checklist that I'm going to work my way into God's favor. That's repulsive. And I, I, don't, I don't know if it's a control issue or if deep down we don't really think that God can actually change us. So here's just, I, I think this is pretty wild and crazy. What if, what if we just fostered and encouraged a deeper love of Jesus? What, what, if, what if we just push people towards knowing him and loving him more? He's actually pretty good at working through the mess in your life and in my life. And you know how I know that? Because his word tells us over and over and over again about that. And then I watch it play out every single week. Every single week I watch this play out in your life and I watch it play out in my life. Because the beauty of the gospel is its profound simplicity. Let me illustrate this from the scriptures themselves. You remember in Mark 9? Mark 9, Jesus uh, has a father come to him. His son uh, is, is, is uh, demon-possessed. Uh, and so the father, come, well, first he comes to the disciples, and they can't really do anything, and there's kind of this whole commotion. And so Jesus shows up. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, well, they can't really deal with this. And so this exchange begins between the father and Christ. And so the father, I mean, can't you just appreciate the, just the angst in that moment as a, as a parent and thinking about your child in that state? And he's just begging Jesus, if you can do anything. And what's Christ's response? Right? I can do anything if you believe. And then some of the most beautiful words in all the scriptures. 
And come on, loved ones, let's be honest, because all of us have been at this point at some point in time in our life, right? The father says, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't this so honest and real? I believe, but I need you to help me because I can't really believe or I can't go all the way. And here's what I want you to fix it on. What does Jesus do in response? Right? He doesn't start wringing his hands and roll his eyes. He's not like, oh, really? After all I've done for you, after all I've shown you, after all the ways that I've worked, that's all you got? Help my unbelief. None of that. He's like, okay, let me do that. See, the gospel gives, or the gospel greets us with the kindness of God, with the patience of God, with the forgiveness of God, and with the hope of God. And I I wonder, I legitimately wonder, are we adding to the gospel what God himself does not add to the gospel? Because if we say that salvation is free, it actually has to be free. Now, I I got no problem with, with saying that, yeah, salvation is free and following Jesus will cost you everything. But maybe this is helpful for us to just remind us of, of, of the true nature of the freeness of the gospel. Think about all of the characters in the Bible for just a moment. Start with Adam and Eve, Joseph, Moses, right? Move all the way through the Old Testament. And we're going we're to exclude Jesus for this illustration because he's different. But when you think about all the characters of the Bible, don't they really read as a who's who list of who could never work at a church today? I mean, seriously, right? Like, who's going to hire David? We need a worship pastor. Hey, David applied. Guy can kill it on the harp. Problem is, he's killing other things too, isn't he? It's like, hey, that whole adultery and murder of Uriah, he'd be DQ'd for ministry. What about Moses? One of the greatest guys that's ever lived. And it's like, well, you got an anger issue and you keep punching people and we're, we're just out on that. The Bible reads as a who's who of, of people who could never work in church. And yet God continues to roll out his sovereign plan through a group of inept people. And so only one of two things can be true. Either God just has terrible discernment, which is not the case, or the gospel is highly accessible to very needy and broken people. Amen? And so ministry aims to make the gospel accessible because that has been God's intention all along. And that's what Paul's driving at here. Secondly, and I need to move a little bit quicker. That was a long first point. Here we go. Secondly, uh, look at verses 19 through 23. Ministry aims to make the gospel clear. It aims to make the gospel clear. So verse 19, Paul says, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I may, may win more of them. And then he gives a number of illustrations. Uh, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, as one under the law. To those outside the law, as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. And of course, the whole goal, I become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And of course, Paul's not saying I'm going to save them, but so that they would come to salvation. Ministry aims to make the gospel clear. Now, loved ones, don't read these verses and hear that Paul is somehow modifying or abandoning the gospel. He's not. He is simply attempting to bring clarity to the gospel, right? The chief aim of ministry is the proclamation of exaltation of Jesus. It's that he would be known, that he would be understood, that there's clarity on the person and work of Christ. But I think these verses require a little bit of caution in general, uh, but also specifically with this idea of making the gospel clear. Because sometimes in our attempt to make the gospel clear, we might be tempted to run to some other areas that become uh, at the very least problematic, if not just flat out wrong. And so if I'm attempting to modify the gospel, if I'm attempting to change the gospel, we've completely erred and we're out of bounds. So for example, here's something you see. I think our desire to make the gospel clear, but really what we do is we we just want to make it more appealing. And so we become Jesus' PR team. Hey, Christ, you know, we we love the work, great work. It's been phenomenal. You've just been just a stalwart for the last 2,000 years. Really appreciate that. But we think it's time to rebrand. Okay, so uh, here's what we're thinking. Um, Let's kind of come back off the wrath and the judgment a little bit. Let's, you know, people don't like to be called sinners. It's 2018. That's pretty offensive. Let's peel back from that and let's really push. Okay, right, we've derailed. That's not the gospel. And Jesus is, is having none of that. 
Or, or if, if we come up with this idea, if we try to soft sell what the gospel is, we reduce the, the call that, that God puts on us. It's like, well, hey, if you just pray a prayer, and then occasionally if you just kind of kind of give a little wink or a finger gun over to God, just so, the, just so he knows that, that you're on his mind, and, and, and we have this idea of God's like, right, two thumbs up, cheesy grin. No, no, that's not the gospel. That's not what he's calling us to. And there's a huge distinction between changing the message versus trying to make it clear. Here's what I saw all the time when we lived in Flagstaff. College town, lots of young people, uh, people exploring their freedom. And so you would watch Christians who would have non-Christian friends and they'd go spend Friday or Saturday night at the bar. And they'd get drunk. Right? Professing Christian, getting drunk with their non-Christian friends. What's going on? Hey man, I'm just all things to all men. Uh, no, you're getting loaded uh, and you're looking for an excuse to try to justify that you're getting loaded. That's not all things to all men. It almost becomes like a free pass to do things that we're not supposed to be doing. And so in, in, in seeking to make the gospel clear, what we don't want to do is it, it, sometimes we actually make it obscure. We should never do what Jesus himself would not do. Right, so Paul makes clear delineations here of like, I'm going to become these things, but I'm not necessarily participating in these things. I'm going to become as one who's under the law, but I'm not really under the law. I'm going to go to those without the law, but I'm under the law of Christ. And sometimes people take this and they'll be like, well, Jesus, Jesus hung out with the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. I won't argue with you on that. But he also didn't conduct himself like the tax collectors and the prostitutes either, did he? He didn't hang out with them and start defrauding people and start selling himself for sex. So there's a clear delineation that he makes. Right? Ministry aims to make the gospel clear, not, not, not to change the message. Two things with respect to this. First of all, look at verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant. Okay, time out. How many of your translations say slave instead of servant? Raise your hand. I don't say this very often because the last thing that we want to do is undermine confidence in biblical fidelity. The best word there is slave. Literally, the, the, the Greek word there is it's this self-enslavement, a willing, uh, a volitional choice to become enslaved. And I'll unpack in a moment why I think that's important. But there is a distinction between being a servant and being a slave. But to be enslaved is to forfeit all of my rights in any sense of autonomy. I literally belong to someone else. And I think the spiritual realities that come out of that become really profound for us as well. So I was reading a book a little while ago, and the author made a really fascinating distinction between the word commit and surrender. And what they went on to say is when you commit to something, you're the one who makes the choice. You're the one who determines how much you're going to be committed uh, you still retain some sense of control and a sense of autonomy. And ultimately, if you want to, you can uncommit or decommit from that commitment. And the author was saying, this is how far too many of us look at our faith. I'll commit to Christ because I still want to control certain parts of it. I still want to tell him what I will and won't do because I still want to be able to back out. Now that's radically different than surrender. See, when you're surrendered, you're like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all in for all the time. And my identity is literally wrapped up in who you are. I forfeit all rights and there's zero autonomy that I have. That's what it is to be a slave. And that's what Paul is talking about here. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant or a slave to all that I might win more of them. We choose to surrender to bring clarity to the gospel. Loved ones, are you surrendered to Jesus or are you simply committed to him on your terms, in your way, and as far as you're willing to go? Secondly, look at verses 20 through 23. I just wrote this down, that we choose to sacrifice to make the gospel clear. 
We choose to sacrifice to make the gospel clear. And, and Paul gives these, these the three, four different examples here about how he's doing this. And I think our tendency is to look at these verses almost kind of like a free pass. Or I get a little bit of freedom or maybe I get to lean into some things that otherwise I wouldn't be able to lean into. And yet I, the thing that I could not get away from this week is, and I've just never thought of it like this before, but as I kept studying the text and the passage, what I kept coming to over and over and over again is how difficult this must have been for Paul. And what a sacrifice this must have been for Paul. And, and the sense of gut wrench that it must have been for Paul. Think about this for a moment. I became as one under the law. Think about what the, Paul, or what the law represented to Paul. For decades, that was the very thing that he found his identity and his salvation. In. And more importantly, it kept him from the gospel and the glories of Christ. It was a difficult thing to be able to go back to that and go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to come under this. Or to think about one who's not under the law and the heartbreak that he must have felt and, and, and looking at people who think they're free only to realize that this thing that they think is freeing them is actually enslaving them. Right? To become weak, to identify with the weak. Right? This is a true sacrifice for Paul to put himself in these positions and yet he is willing to move to, into uncomfortable spaces for their sake and for the sake of the gospel's clarity. Sound like anybody else? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That's exactly what he's done for us. And so, loved one, just ask yourself, what am I willing to sacrifice to make the gospel clear? Am I willing to be moved out of what is comfortable, what is easy, what is preferred in order that people can be introduced to and understand who Jesus is and what he's really done? Ministry aims to make the gospel clear. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 24 through 27. Ministry aims to make the gospel eternal. And ultimately, it will make it eternal. So Paul now closes his argument with an illustration it's one of the few sports metaphors that we get in the scriptures. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? I love this next line. So run that you may obtain it. It's almost like biblical warrant to be competitive. It's like, man, play hard, work hard, go after this. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so Paul writing to the Corinthians, one of the things you have to understand is, is not only did, did Athens have their, uh, their version of the Olympics, it was not at all uncommon for other communities to have similar type events and games. And Corinth every other year would host their, uh, their particular version of the Olympics. And so Paul's kind of leaning into that. Maybe he had been there uh, when this was going on, or maybe as he's writing this letter that was going on. So he's leaning into what all of those people certainly would have understood. But he's pushing them far beyond just winning the competition in front of them, but seeing the eternality of our ministry. So let me say two things briefly about, about this. First of all, that ministry demands our best. That's what he tells us in verse 24. Run to win. You don't give your best if you're not trying to win. Right? Like when you go play basketball with your seven-year-old and they got to do like everything in the world to get the ball up to the hoop. I mean, you can kind of, you can kind of slouch and still pull it off. And I think that's some of the danger that we fall into from time to time with respect to ministry is sometimes we're okay to just give half effort. We're okay to say, you know, that's good enough. And I'm not advocating for perfectionism here, loved ones, or even performance, but there has to be the sense of authenticity, this realness uh, to, to what we're after. And I think what Paul is getting is at the seriousness and the magnitude of this. This isn't some carnival game on the side. We're playing to win. So just ask yourself, does my investment into ministry, is it at least the same as my investment into work, into family, into hobby, into entertainment, and matters of the like? Am I at least putting in as much in my diligence and, and, and perseverance in ministry that I'm putting into other areas of my life. Doesn't the kingdom of God deserve our best? Not our leftovers. 
So ministry demands our best. Ministry demands discipline. We don't like discipline because it's hard and it requires effort and it just keeps coming up. And, and it's like, oh, I don't And yet look at what he says. Every, every, verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And anytime you watch the Olympics, I don't know about you. I mean, I, I don't have a hard time with spending hours and hours and hours in the pool or, or, or some of the other things. But the thing that always gets me is I'm like, man, those guys eat so clean for so long. <laughs> you know, it, it's just like, how? I, I've got no problem with the pool part, but like, how do you just keep eating celery and carrots for months on end uh, and like never enjoy anything? Which is why after they compete, they usually gorge themselves at McDonald's on Big Macs and stuff and uh, those types of things. But, but it's this discipline. And it's a willingness to see it through to the end. And Paul says this, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. I didn't know this till this week. Most likely the wreath that they got was literally a bunch of celery stalks woven together. It's got to be the lamest prize for winning ever, right? I mean, that thing is going to be like soft and wilted in about four hours. I mean, at least today you get a gold medal, right? It's actually worth something. These guys got celery stalks to place on their head. And yet, listen to me, and yet they threw themselves entirely into that for a perishable price. And Paul's saying, we're not playing for celery stocks. We're playing for eternity here. If they're willing to discipline themselves for a lousy vegetable, shouldn't we be willing to go the distance for something that will last for all of time? Ministry demands discipline. Okay, so how? How do we do this? How do we participate in this? How do we make this happen? I've got five things, five things that we'll close with. Um, before I do that, let me just take a minute or two and just kind of frame this. I think it's important for us to think about the different roles and the different spheres where ministry will unfold in our lives. I think we're too narrow. Often we think of ministry of what happens in the church or if I share the gospel with a non-believer, and we fail to see all of the other um, forms and spheres that ministry unfolds in. So here's a handful of places that I want us to think about with respect to ministry. First of all, in your family. If your parents, disciple your children. If your grandparents, disciple and love your grandchildren. That's, that's like the best gig on planet Earth right there, is being a grandparent. Not just because it's fun and you don't have to change dirty diapers and deal with discipline, but because you get a chance to leave the best part of you with a generation that will spend the majority of their life without you being around. That's a wonderful, wonderful gift. And so in the family unit, between spouses, children, parents, and there's just different seasons of that, right? So so some of you are in a season where it's like, I barely sleep, I change a lot of diapers, and I clean spit up all the time. Um, And others of you, uh, God is exercising patience because you've stepped on like 4,000 Legos in the last three weeks. And and it's just trying to teach your kids basic things. And then some of you have teenagers and we should just pray over all of you. Um, And we should pray for the teenagers as well. Because, you know, sometimes mom and dad aren't exactly fun when you're a teen either. So it's not one way. All right, mom and dad, it cuts both ways. Sometimes you got to be willing to trust your kids a little bit more. Uh, But in, in, and then some of you are dealing with elderly parents, right? You're on the other side of this thing. So family, then there's our spiritual family in the church. This is really what we see so much of the scriptures talking about spiritual gifts and how those are utilized. And we'll get to that here in a minute. But here's some other areas that I don't think that we often think of with respect to ministry. And we would do well to think of with respect to ministry. Uh, one is our neighborhood and our community. In a broader sense, Rio Rancho, Albuquerque, in a more specific sense, even the neighborhoods you live in. So whether it be Cabazon or Ventana Ranch or Corrales or Northern Meadows or wherever you live, right, where we're thinking about the communities that we find ourselves in. Um, Work and school. Far too few of us think of work and school as 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 a means of ministry. And yet that's where you encounter most people. You spend the majority of your time in one of those two places. That's one of the greatest uh, 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 venues, uh, atmospheres for you to engage people around you. So when you go to work, when you go to school, those are people that God has placed in your life. And we have to think that way. And then I I just wrote this down, that, that we have to think beyond our community. There has to be a global component. Uh, when we think of ministry, that we are a part of the universal church, 
not just us, not even just Albuquerque, but far, far bigger than that. So different spheres, different seasons. Uh, and so here, here's five things. Here we go. Let's just get to it. Here's the first. And, and I mean, these first, well, really all of them, you're going to be like, that's all you came up with? Yeah, that's all I came up with because this is all we need to do. Okay, first of all, we share the gospel. Uh, like, haven't we been talking about that all day? Exactly. It's the whole point. That's what Paul keeps coming back to is the clarity of the gospel, the accessibility of the gospel, the eternality of the gospel. We minister to one another by sharing the gospel. Now, let me just say one thing about sharing the gospel. The biblical mandate of proclamation involves us articulating or using words. Did you hear that? Okay. The gospel is not, well, I held the door open for that old lady. That's a nice deed. But we got to get away from this idea of, well, I hope they see Jesus in that. They probably won't. I'm serious. When we share the gospel, it's an articulation. It's verbalizing the reality of what Christ has done. And it's not just for non-believers. You're crazy if you think you don't need the gospel proclaimed to you. My wife has had to proclaim the gospel to me multiple times this week and just remind me of all that Christ has done for me and that he is sufficient and that he's enough. We share the gospel. Secondly, we disciple others. And you could say, and are discipled by others. Think of Matthew 28, where Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. Think of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, where he talks about four different generations of, of what's been entrusted to you. I want you to pass along to faithful men, and then they can pass that on to others. And just this, this, this process, this multiplication of discipleship. Right, that we're growing in faith and godliness, that we're invested in the spiritual well-being of one another. And so one of the ways that you might end up ministering to someone is that you're willing to disciple someone. And you go, or maybe you're sitting here like, Mike, I've got nothing to offer someone. Then look around the room, find someone who you do think uh, has something to offer and say, I need you to disciple me so that I can have something to pass on to someone else. We disciple others. Thirdly, we pray for one another. I mean, aren't these all just brand new? You've never heard of any of these things before, have you? Right? And yet, I mean, there's something that's really freeing about the simplicity in these things. We pray for one another. Think about how many times Paul, at the beginning of his letters to different churches, is talking about how I'm praying for you. Right, that your love would abound more and more and all uh, discernment and knowledge that, that, that you would have greater wisdom and understanding of the gospel. And you look at the book of Acts and over and over and over again where they're devoted to prayer. And yet I think we've become so inoculated and callous to the reality of what prayer is and what's actually happening. That at any point in time, I can get in front of the God of the universe and he can align my heart and my mind and my will to himself. That's insane. And it's not just about, hey, God, would you do this for me? But God's going to lead. God's going to direct and guide. God's going to help us to submit. God's going to help us to follow. One of the things we like to say around here is that prayer is the evidence that I believe the gospel. Prayer proves that I really believe what the gospel says about myself. Because it, it, it's, when I go back to God, I'm proving God, I still need you. I still need you. Never come to a point where we outgrow that. We pray for one another. And don't listen, don't ever think... Don't ever think that prayer is somehow less than doing something else for someone. We've, we've fallen into this kind of this weird place as a society where we almost mock people. Oh, I'll pray for you. Kind of like that's somehow less than actually doing something. I, when I read the Bible, I can't find anything that's more important than us praying for one another. Now, if you tell someone you're going to pray for them, doggone it, pray for them. Seriously. I think the worst thing you could do is say, I'm going to pray for you, and then I don't actually pray for you. You're defrauding and cheating a brother or a sister. And so if you have a conversation with someone, okay, let me back up. If you're forgetful, pray before you walk away. If you're on the phone, pray before you get off the phone. Or as soon as you hang up, pray. If you're texting with them, text them a prayer. Send them an email and let it be a prayer. Write it down. I have oftentimes prayed, God, would you help me to remember to pray? 
And I got some wild stories of being in the middle of something totally different. Like, oh, I got to go pray for this person. Or even just stopping in that moment. God loves to answer that prayer. Okay, but if we're going to say we're going to pray for one another, we have to pray for one another. Number four, we use our spiritual gifts to edify the church. We use our spiritual gifts to edify the church. Now, all over the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, we see different items about spiritual gifts. But God gives you and I gifts so that we can minister to one another. And this has to be one of the most disheartening, grievous things that I see in the church is when people, listen to me, loved ones, listen to me, is when people will begrudge the gifts that God has given to them. And when that happens, not only do they lose, but the entire body of Christ loses. See, the Corinthians had this really weird issue. And when you get over into the next couple of chapters, Paul begins to engage this. But they had this really weird issue where they thought that some spiritual gifts were better and more important and more necessary than other gifts. And so Paul gets on them about that. And and inasmuch as Paul gets on them, we do the exact same thing today. And honestly, it's, it's ridiculous. We think some gifts are better than others. Some are more important, some are more needed, some are more necessary, yet the Bible will never move to that place. And some of us treat our spiritual gifts. You ever watched a kid on their birthday or on Christmas opening a present? Like they can't help it, they're just excited. And their eyes are all big and there's this anticipation and they open it and then they realize what's, what's in there maybe isn't what they thought it was. Or maybe even more importantly, it's something they don't even like or care about. And kids can't fake it, right? Like as adults, we can be like, oh, thank you. I needed this, I think, right? And we kind of stumbled through. But kids, there's just no, there's none of that with kids. So they just open it up and the shoulders sink and, and there's like a frown on their face. And they might not even be, they might just be like, I don't even want this, or I don't like this. Or do I have to play with this? Um, can I take it back? Do you have a receipt, right? I mean, like all these things, they just go right to that place. And yet, I think... That's what a lot of us are like with our spiritual gift. Like we realize, hey, this is what God gave me. And it's like, oh, that's it. God gave you a gift to use to expand his kingdom and to make him famous. That's awesome. And we would do well to appreciate what God has given us. And so no more. No more of that. Well, my gift is lame. Or my gift's not that important. Okay, here's my question for you. According to who? Because God never says that. You might say that. God never says that. And I think, I think inside all of us, there's a sense where, where we'll look at others and we marvel at what God has put into them, partly because we don't have it. And that's fine. Let's celebrate that. But not at the expense of downplaying what God has put into us. Because ultimately, I'm not really celebrating that person. I'm celebrating the kindness and the generosity of God, not only to them, but also to me, that he fills in the areas where I'm inadequate. It's like I look around at the church, and and I see all kinds of people, and I'm like, thank you, Lord, because I'm terrible at so many of these things. But the people of God in the church of God accomplish the fullness of the purpose of God. So even this week, my my wife, one of her gifts, she just has this gift of faith. And you couple that with this eternal optimistic reality. And sometimes that's fantastic. And sometimes it drives me insane. (laughs) Because, like, I can't see it. I can't get there. And she'll be like, nope, God's going to do it. It's going to happen. I'm like, what are you looking at? Like, there's nothing even leaning in that direction. Just watch. Just watch. And, of course... Like, at this point, we've been married long enough to, to, for I'm just like, okay, fine. I'm just not going to say anything because eventually it's going to happen, um, right? And, and even if it doesn't, it's, she's, like, she's just like unfazed because she's an optimist. And I, and I mean, I would love to be an optimist. That's just not who I am, all right? And, and, then, and then you look at other people. Like, w- one of the things that I hear people begrudge often is the gift of hospitality. And yet I got to tell you if, you, ever, if you're around someone who's hospitable, that's like one of the greatest blessings. Um, actually, Heather's not even sitting in here, so this is good. So Heather Higgins, if you've met Heather, Heather has this insane gift of hospitality. And I remember the first time we were in the Higgins home, we'd been there about three minutes. I'm like, I feel like I'm part of the family. If they called me Mike Higgins, I'd be like, yep, that's me. What's up? I mean, just, it's so freeing. 
Or people have like the gift of helps and mercy. I think about like Joe Beckman or Dwayne Roth or Larry or these guys who just, they want to serve people constantly. Or these prayer warriors who just at the drop of a hat could pray for anything and everything. And then don't get me started on this, the worship people. I love you and sometimes I just want to hurt you. Because it's just not fair. Like a win for me is being able to sing and clap to the beat. And they come up here and they'll play instruments. And a couple weeks ago, Randy played like four instruments. I'm like, with the nerve of this guy. (laughs) But it's the beauty of God fulfilling the fullness of his purpose. Because there are certain things I can do that other people can't do. And so they get frustrated or annoyed and they're like, oh, God thinks that that Mike can do that and I don't have to do that. And so we could, right? We could, we could look at that and we could go, why didn't I get that? Or we could praise God for his kindness and that even though I didn't get it directly, he has given it to us all in the culmination of the body of Christ. And so, loved one, listen to me. Use your gift. Use your good gift to edify and build up the church and minister to God's people into the world. Amen? Here's the final thing briefly. Uh, this one might feel a little bit like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Uh, here's the final one is that the ways that we minister to one another is that we study and we engage with culture. Whoa, that's kind of different than the first four. I know, that's on purpose. Uh, but we study and we engage with culture. And in Acts 17, Paul does just this remarkable job of paying incredible attention to a large group of people that are very lost, very broken, and need Jesus just like you and I need Jesus. We cannot be people who retreat, be people who retreat. We cannot be people who are just biding our time till we die. We have to be willing to engage people around us with the gospel. And it's not just, I can answer the questions that I want to answer. Could I answer the questions that people who don't know Jesus are asking? Am I aware of what fears, what anxieties, what leads them to a place of despair, uh, that, that, that outside of Christ, could I even begin to articulate what that is, much less begin to walk down that road? And so as we study and we engage with culture, I, I know that Jesus is the destination. I'm not arguing with that. What I'm saying to us is God help us that we would be people who could walk them from the place that they find themselves to the person of Jesus. That's what it is to be missional. That's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 9, is a willingness, I'm willing to become anything to anybody in order for them to see Christ. A faithful church loves ministry. God help us, God help us, God help us that, that we would be a faithful church, that we would love God, that we would love his word, that we would love the gospel, that we'd love one another. And as we've seen today, that we would love ministry. Let's pray.